Hi, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of T1 Talks. I'm Gianna, a type 1 diabetic of 14 years and a recent graduate of the College of New Jersey. And I'm Victoria, a newly diagnosed type 1 at 29 years old. I'm a second year medical student from Saskatchewan, Canada, and we're both super excited to be here with you today, kicking off the first episode. So Gianna, can you explain a bit about what's going on? Sure. So the main goal of T1 Talks is to use our two different type 1 perspectives to build a sense of community for diabetics, both type 1 and 2. We want to normalize the parts of chronic conditions that people normally seem to shy away from. Yeah, and we want to be real and honest with you guys and dispel any myths about what it means to be type 1 diabetic, while also increasing diabetic awareness through sharing our stories. We hope that from each story you guys come out either learning something from it or being able to connect or relate to a story we share. And so to kick us off, we're naturally going to start with the story of how we were originally diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Yeah, and you can go ahead and start us off, Victoria, since I think your story is one that a lot of pre-diabetics out there are currently struggling with. For sure. So I guess I'll start by looking back on my early symptoms, which were pretty subtle, and I really did brush them off as nothing. I wasn't diagnosed until January, and I figured that my symptoms probably started about a year before that. And some things that I really remember starting were things like I was losing weight and I was drinking a lot of water. Um, but honestly, it, were, it was things that I could sort of brush off as being normal or being healthy. And so I found that I was sort of thinking like, oh, you know, like I'm losing weight. This is great. Like I'm in school full time. I'm really busy. I have lots going on. I'm in a new routine maybe this is normal. And same with drinking water. It's really easy to sort of justify like, oh, this is a good thing. This is good for you. It's good to drink water. I've always been a water drinker. So it wasn't that weird to me when I was waking up at night thirsty drinking water. Were the people around you noticing this new behavior or was it kind of just you were still the same you? Yeah, well, honestly, it was really tough because I moved, right? sort of in the middle of all of this, um, away from my family. And so I sort of was a new normal when I moved and it was hard for people to know any different from that. Nobody noticed how much water I was drinking, which I think is kind of weird because I did spend a lot of time with other people where I was just guzzling water. But again, right, like it's sort of a healthy thing. People think, oh, you know, you're, you're just hydrated. You're just healthy. Um, but definitely the weight loss, that was the most um, that was the biggest thing that people noticed and commented on. And I really, after I got back this past summer, I had probably four or five different people on different occasions mention that I'd lost weight. And I had noticed that I'd lost weight. My clothes were fitting a little looser, but I hadn't really thought about it until I went back to Saskatoon for a few days. And then I was driving back and I was contemplating unintentional weight loss, which is a a red flag sign in medicine that we learn a lot about. And so I phoned my friend. I was really anxious. I'm like, do you think I'm sick? Like I have this unintentional weight loss. I figure I've lost maybe 20 pounds. I haven't been trying. What could be going on? So we talked back and forth about a couple of things that could be going on. And again, I just brushed it off as, you know, I was drinking a lot of milk and I'd stopped doing that. And I was exercising more maybe. And just all these things. Like, I can't stress how easy it is to just brush these things off as being normal. But five months after that conversation, 
I was diagnosed diabetic. So definitely uh, there was something wrong. And I'd say that by the time I was diagnosed in January, the biggest thing that I was doing that was really abnormal was waking up. I would wake up in the middle of the night and drink a whole liter of water and then refill it at the sink and still be thirsty. And I couldn't drink anymore because my stomach was full of water, but I was still thirsty. And then of course, as you can imagine, I was up a couple of times at night to pee. And every time I did that, I would drink more water and it was a vicious cycle. Yeah, those are two big red flags for diabetics, the whole endless drinking and endless bathroom breaks. Totally. So again, like I just, I just brushed this off as being part of my life. Um, you know, I was stressed. I was up at night. So of course I'm going to go to the bathroom. Um, in medicine, like we talk about numbers and it's really hard to quantify how much are you drinking? How much are you peeing? All of those things. And so I had a really hard time seeing my own symptoms, but um, that's okay because uh, we had a diabetic teaching workshop that was put on during our endocrinology module in January. And part of this was we were learning how to count carbs. We were learning how to adjust insulin doses. We were learning about the different types of insulin. And we were also learning how to finger prick and check blood sugars and give insulin injections for our patients and teach them how. And so part of this was we all got to check our own blood sugars. At the time, my best friend's pregnant, and so we were really concerned about her having gestational diabetes, which is another type of diabetes, but when she checked her sugars, they were beautiful, they were normal, hers was like 4.5 or something, which is super normal, um, anything less than 11 is considered normal, and mine, when I checked it, was 17, so almost double what it's supposed to be. What were you feeling when you saw that initial number were you nervous or you thought it was a mistake i was pretty nervous um it's a pretty bad sign to have your sugars be that high but the nurse was really reassuring the nurse assumed that i had sugar on my hands and so i just went and washed my hands and came back and was really really hoping it would be normal and so that was always my hope. I would say for the first week or so, I was hoping that it was just a mistake. It was just a messed up meter or a weird day I had taken. I, I had been sick that morning. And so I thought maybe it was from that. I, I washed my hands. The nurse, we checked my sugars again and they were higher. So washing my hands didn't help. Um, and so I just, I used different meters. I use, I checked my finger pricks again and again and again, and it just got more and more, or I guess less and less reassuring that it was just a mistake. And knowing what I know or what I knew then, and I know a bit more now, but it was really, really likely that this was type two diabetes. But in my head, because I'm so young and I'm healthy and I would have said I was asymptomatic at that point because I hadn't really like done all the, all the thinking back on my symptoms. So at the time I thought that I was asymptomatic. And so when I was thinking about what was going on, I really like, I was thinking about all the common things it could be, but then also all the scary things it could be. So could this be a tumor that was causing me to release too much sugar? Could this be some sort of virus? Could this be something scary? And 
the nurse who was doing the session was really non-reassuring as well. Her words to me were, you need to make a doctor's appointment as soon as possible. You need to go to emergency if, if you're not feeling well. And that's basically how things were left. I called my doctor's office and I made an appointment. And I have to say the rest of that diabetes workshop was a wash. I didn't pay any attention. Um, but that was my first real, I guess, idea that there was something seriously wrong. Were you talking to the other people around you? Or was this kind of like you were internalizing all this like nerves, not knowing if it was diabetes, not knowing what it was? Yeah, I reached out to some classmates. I felt like they were the safest people to reach out to because I didn't know what was going on. And that was really hard. It was actually hard for me because it was so public when like I was in class when I checked this sugar. And so everyone knew what had happened. Um, and that made it both easier and harder. I found that the, I guess, sort of the problem with where we are at in our medical education is that we're really learning all the bad things that can happen. And so basically all of our diabetes lectures are on the consequences of diabetes. Um, you know, what happens if you don't have good glycemic control? How do we diagnose these things? And so it paints a really dim picture of what an actual diabetic life looks like. I was really, really lucky that there's another diabetic, another type one diabetic in my class. And so having her to reach out to, not that I did it that first weekend, but once I was a bit more familiar with what was going on, having her to reach out to was really, really helpful because she knew what I was going through sort of and could just offer that ear of listening. You know, she knew what high sugars felt like. She knew what low sugars felt like. It was really reassuring to just talk to someone who knew what was going on. Yeah, that kind of support system is, I would say, essential when it comes to being diagnosed with some kind of life-changing condition. Yes, totally. And so I guess then I'll, I was officially diagnosed diabetic um, at the end of January. Welcome to the club. Yeah, thanks. Uh, my A1C, which is sort of a three-month marker of, sh of sugar control, was very high. So normal is less than 6.5 or 6, depending on who you ask. And mine was 11, so almost double what it was supposed to be. And what that said was that it's been going on for a while, which makes sense when I talk about my symptoms. Um, you can see how that all fits together. The doctor assumed that it was type two, but was doing tests to make sure that it was type two. So he wasn't convinced, but we were gonna move that way for treatment. The hardest part for that of that for me was that type two, like both types of diabetes, we wanna do a lot of lifestyle modifications. So we wanna eat healthier, we wanna exercise more, but type two diabetes, there's a lot of social sort of things that come along with it. And so we look at type two diabetes as being more preventable than type one diabetes. And for me, that was really hard because I'm a person who blames myself and I really felt like it was my fault that I was sick. And on top of that, they were offering so much advice that I wasn't ready for. And so the main piece of advice that is gonna stick with me, I'm sure forever, is that I feel like everyone 
as soon as they looked at my food log that I was keeping, everyone said, you need to stop drinking lattes. And I was devastated. Like I was already having to change so many things and deal with all this emotional turmoil. And now they're taking away a med student's coffee. <laughs> it highlights the importance of taking small steps when they're telling you all these life changes and then that one thing that really sets you off. And honestly, like I had to draw a boundary with everyone I talked to and I said, we can talk about things, we can talk about my lattes, but I'm not getting rid of my lattes yet. I'm gonna do other things first, I'm gonna do easier things first, and I'll get to my lattes when I'm ready to. And I have reduced how many lattes I drink um, a few months later, but it was a really slow process. And it was literally something I said no to my doctors about. I said, no, I'm not getting rid of my lattes. My lattes are not what's causing my sugars to be this out of whack. Which is pretty brave of you, in my opinion, because I think a lot of diabetics or just people in general fear talking to their doctor about what they want to do and what they think they're ready to do because they trust the doctor so much that they just take it and say, they're right. I can't, I don't have any other options. This is what I have to do. And they kind of just quietly accept it and defeat. Exactly. And I think that what that causes is it causes people to feel ashamed and to lie to their doctor. And for me, as someone who's going to hopefully be someone's doctor one day, I want them to be able to say, here's what I can do. And here's what I can't do. And be honest about that. Um, I, I'm sure that we'll talk about this more, but I have chronic pain. And so that's another thing that I've had to be really clear with my doctors about is that exercise is very challenging for me for a lot of reasons, especially when my sugars were so high because I felt awful and I have all these other things. And so that was another thing that I had to tell them, like, I will start exercising and I will start considering how this is going to work. But this isn't where you guys are going to come at me every time. You're not going to say, oh, are you exercising yet? Like, I wasn't ready to hear that. Um, I needed more gentle coaching and, and support along the way instead of them just dictating what I was doing. And when you first get diagnosed with diabetes, a big part of that is establishing new habits for the rest of your life. And I think if you try to implement all of these habits at once, you're not going to last long. You need to be able to set these up in steps and kind of set up your life slowly. Totally. And that would be like, that was advice that I got quite a few times from people. Uh, when you talk to me, you can hear that I'm just super keen on, you know, getting there faster and just getting things under control. And the best piece of advice that I heard from people was just, this is a lifelong thing. You have your whole life to make these changes, to come up with solutions. Right now, just take things one step at a time. And I think that that's just really, really good advice. And I think leads into the next part of my story, which again is a lot of advocating for myself because I'm impatient. Um, and I, I have a good rapport with my doctor. But what happened was he gave me medication. The medication made me nauseated. I took it for a month and there was no difference in any of my sugar values. And that was really, really frustrating for me. I was talking to my pharmacist friends. I was talking to my med student friends and I was really frustrated that there wasn't any results and I was nauseated. So there's no control there. 
there's no control. Um, and I, it's, I've been tracking my fasting blood sugars for, I think over a hundred days now. And it's amazing to look at the, at how there was just no change with that medication, even after a month. And then as soon as I start insulin, which is the next part of my story, everything changed. So I got a continuous glucose monitor right before I started insulin. And that was the best thing I've done. So it took away all the finger pricks. It took away me needing to count 80 cents every time I checked my sugar. And it let me just, I used a Libre Freestyle and I just scanned it every now and then and could check my sugars and see a graph. And that really helped me know what my sugars were doing and maybe where we could make more changes. And ultimately it showed me that I was probably going to need insulin. And so I met with my doctor and we talked about different options for what we would consider non-responsive type two diabetes. And I asked for insulin at that appointment. He had never given insulin before in this circumstance with a newly diagnosed type two. And we worked together to figure out sort of what that was going to look like. And the reason why I wanted to go on insulin, it's not like, it's not that I like needles. It's not that I want to be giving injections every day. Oh, I thought you loved them. I know, right? <laughs> Don't be so fun. <laughs> um, but it's because actually giving yourself insulin, even in type two diabetes, it can preserve or protect your pancreas. And so that was really important to me when I was thinking about my treatment options was that if I had any pancreas function left, I wanted to keep it. And so I was willing to go through the trials of having injections and doing all of that to help protect my pancreas. And ultimately it was the right decision for a different reason. Um, and so after I started my long acting insulin, it was really clear that that still wasn't enough insulin for me. We started getting some lab results back and they were sort of on the edge. It wasn't clear if I was type one or type two. And so it didn't really help. Not everyone is a classic case and I'm a really good example of that. I don't meet any real good criteria yet and I haven't seen an endocrinologist yet. And so this is all still sort of up in the air. So you were going to school full-time during this. Was this something that you were putting in front of school or were you still kind of brushing it off? Because it sounds like you, you took it very seriously. Yeah, so that's actually a really good point. I took it extremely seriously. So after that first sugar, high sugar that I got, I that weekend, so that was a Friday, that weekend I emailed the student services within the College of Medicine and gave them a really good idea of what was going on so that I had the ability to miss class for doctor's appointments. I knew that I needed to prioritize this to figure out what was going on and that I was going to do my best to keep on top of school at the same time. So I prioritized my health in this way from the very beginning. I didn't hesitate to do that. In medicine, you don't get to hesitate you don't have time and so I felt like the best thing I could do was just make sure everyone knew as much as I knew so that I could be supported if I needed it and the school was really really supportive I think it was helpful that it happened in class because everyone did know what was going on like all of the course directors and everyone it's a small program then it was after my first appointment and when I was started on medications 
that's when it really came down to me having to decide that I was going to get my health under control before school. And that decision what meant that I had to talk about withdrawal dates. I had to talk about what happened if my health got better, if it got worse, and just have all these plans and things figured out for making sure that I could look after my health before looking after my education. It was not an easy decision to make. Especially in medicine, you feel like there's so much pressure to keep going. Everything happens so fast. We have exams every one or two weeks. This term from January until now, we've gone through four separate system modules. So it's really intense. And I think that that makes it easier in some ways to say, like, I realize that if I miss a week of school, I might not be able to catch up. And so just having contingency plans in place was really important for me. And honestly, like that was the best thing I can do. So for anyone who's in school, who's going through any health changes, I recommend getting in touch with your student support people because they're the best resources that you can imagine most of the time. I'm sure that there are not great ones out there, but I've had really good experiences. I just want to jump in real quick and say, I know next week's episode is focused on accommodations and being able to address your needs as a diabetic, but I want to point out that all diabetics need to be able to draw the line somewhere and realize what's important long-term, even though the short-term stresses may seem more dominant right now. Yes, totally. And I, I think that that's what I really try to keep my, my mind on my future versus right now. And so like right now, it feels great to ignore my diabetes, pretend it's not there and just keep going. But if I want to be a doctor when I'm 60, I need to get things under control now. So I just try to hold all of those goals together and being kind to myself. It's a disaster most days, but we do our best. And that's pretty much where things are at. Like I, again, I needed more insulin. So I got fast acting insulin after that. And then I guess now we're in quarantine. And I found that's actually really nice for me to have some time at home where I can work on figuring out how many carbs are in these things and how much insulin do I need for rice versus pizza um, and really just starting to live my life with diabetes instead of just living my life from meal to meal. I think it's going pretty well from my perspective anyways. I think you're actually doing a lot better than most diabetics begin. And I, I think it's super helpful to just have the support that I've had. I've had other people to talk to. I really like reaching out and asking for help. And even just reading people's stories and listening to things like this podcast are so helpful when you're struggling and you don't know where you are and what's going to happen. Yeah, I would definitely say it's important to be proactive when you're first diagnosed. You can save yourself a lot of pain later on. Yes. And I think just realizing that you can control a lot of it and you will learn what you can't control and those things you'll find peace with and everything else you can do your best to make the best it can be, I guess. So that's my story. And now I'll pass it over to Gianna who can tell us about how you were diagnosed. Yeah. So my story is quite different from Victoria's. It happened when I was nine I'm 23 now, so it's, it's been a while. It also just moved very quickly. It wasn't really a gradual thing. It was kind of just like one day I started to show up symptoms, and then by the next week I was fully diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I would say the first red flag 
was when I finished two liters of Sprite in one night. Oh my goodness. Was that like full sugar Sprite? Oh yeah, this was full sugar Sprite, no diet soda, nothing. And I was proud of it. I I was a <laughs> nine-year-old kid who was proud that they finished two sodas, whereas my parents are looking at me like I have two heads. But I kind of dismissed it thinking maybe that's just her. We went Christmas shopping the same week. While we were out Christmas shopping, we went to two or three different stores. And each time I spent 20 minutes in the bathroom running back and forth. And then by the time we went out for dinner afterwards, I fell asleep on the table. I still was using the bathroom. And at this point, it was just looking a little weird to everyone around me. But to myself, I didn't think anything of it just because I kind of thought everyone was going through the same thing. And it was just something that no one talked about. I was kind of doing what you were doing, Victoria, in the way that I was ignoring the symptoms. And just believing that these were everyday normal feelings. Yeah, I think that's super common. But do you think your parents noticed something was up? So I definitely think they knew something was wrong. Do I think they thought it was diabetes? Probably not, even though my dad is a type 1 diabetic. I don't think it was something that went across their mind because normally you assume your child makes it to nine years old that they've kind of it would have came up already, but that's not how it is. I definitely don't think they saw it as being any kind of life-changing, life-threatening condition. I think they might have thought something was wrong personally, or maybe related to something I was eating. I don't know, but I, I definitely don't think they realized that it would be something that would change the course of my life forever. And so when we left the restaurant and came home, my parents suggested that I test my blood sugar. And I had the biggest fear of needles in the world. I refused to go near them. I couldn't look at them. And when my dad shows me his pricker for the first time, it's this centimeter tall needle. Yet I was scared out of my mind. I remember my dad chasing me around the house. I wouldn't sit still. I was not going to let him touch me with this needle. Well, apparently I was wrong because a little while later, he finally gets a hold of me and tests my sugar. And it shows up high, just the letter is H-I, meaning my sugar was somewhere over 500. Absolutely terrible. I'm very lucky I wasn't in DKA. But to me as a child, I didn't really think it was a big deal. I was thinking the meter was saying hello to me and I'm waving back to it. And while I'm over there talking to the meter, my parents are beginning to get a little bit concerned. They realize that something's seriously wrong, and they call the doctor and schedule an appointment. I'm really lucky that I had parents that one of them was a diabetic, and the other was someone that was very proactive about figuring out what was going on. Because I think in much more cases, these kind of things are ignored and taken as one-offs. Oh, their sugar was only high once. Who cares? Oh, those symptoms are normal. Don't even worry about it. So I was very lucky in that way that that didn't happen with me. Do you think that your dad was more worried about you because he had type 1 and he saw your high sugars? I think he thought it was kind of just because I drank the soda that my sugar was so high. Oh, yeah. That's kind of what they assumed at first. But then as I started to show more symptoms, I think my dad kind of understood what was going on. And I think it hit my mom, too, even though she wasn't diabetic because she had seen my dad for so many years with it, that this could be that but at the same time like I mentioned before I think that nine is leaning towards the verge of when you start to not think about type 1 diabetes and I think they were kind of past that and thought the sugars would have shown up already but that's not always the case so they weren't really thinking about it in that kind of way
But when we arrived at the doctor the next day and had me urinate in a cup, test for ketones, it was a very scary thing to me. I was confused as to what was going on. They're yelling at me to drink more water, telling me I have to use the bathroom. And I was just super stressed out. And I was also confused because everyone around me was starting to look more and more concerned. And I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was fine. My best friend called me on the phone, asked why I missed school. I was telling her I was just taking a day off. I think it would be really hard and scary as a nine-year-old going through that, not yeah. understanding. And it's so fast, right? That, that was the thing. It was just moving very quickly for me. I felt like I had just gone from Christmas shopping with my family to now suddenly realizing how tired I was and how thirsty I was and still not really like getting the, I guess, impact of it. And so when I tested positive for ketones, the doctor told my mom that I had to go to the hospital immediately. There, there was no time to go home. I had to go straight there. So me and my mom and one of her friends head over to the hospital. People around me are now crying. I'm crying because I was an impressionable kid. I didn't really know what was going on. So we get to the hospital. They try to put an IV in my arm. They're suddenly trying to teach me how to use these needles. I remember the doctor showing me a needle that a woman is given before she delivers a baby and trying to get me to understand that that was what a big needle is and what I'm taking is this puny little needle. I refused to take the needles. I kind of tried to avoid them. Do you think that being shown that big needle was helpful or harmful? <laughs> I think it was helpful in the way that it made me laugh and it kind of distracted me for a second and made me realize it wasn't as bad as I was thinking. It, did, it definitely didn't lessen my fear of needles. Right. But it showed you that people survived with these huge needles. And so probably you'd be okay with a little needle. Yes, exactly. I think knowing I didn't have to take that, I was like, well, that sucks for them kind of thing. <laughs> it was beneficial in a way. Good. But at the end of the week, when they told me it was time to leave the hospital, I definitely don't think I was ready to start this lifelong journey with diabetes. I went back to school and that's really where things were, I would say, the hardest because these people around me didn't know anything about diabetes. And I, I think it would have been so beneficial to have some kind of teacher, nurse, anything come in and talk about what it means, what my devices are. You know, when I'm walking into the room with a pump, sometimes kids would see it and like say, I want to play with that. I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And if they knew how to correctly help me put my carbs in or correctly help me give insulin, I think they'd be interested because A, they're helping people and B, they're playing with something. And I think I would have felt a lot better because I would have felt more normal when I had to leave lunch and go to the nurse or come back and wait to eat because I had a high blood sugar, stuff like that. Those are things that are really important to think about when you're thinking about childhood diabetes. These kids are kind of isolated and it happens a lot and people don't mean for it to happen, but they don't want to ask questions. They don't want to offend someone by accident and it leaves diabetes kind of off the table as a, as a subject to talk about. Totally. And I think that at least in medical school, like we learn how helpful it is to have those education sessions in classrooms. And it's something that I would recommend for any parent of a kiddo who has diabetes is to talk to the school about how to get into the classroom to educate the kids about what's going on. Because kids are amazingly 
amazingly accepting of these things if they know what's going on. And so like, I think that you're absolutely right. How nice would it have been if you had people comfortable enough to come and give you your insulin and then play the fun, let's sit for 15 minutes before we get to eat. And you know, like you can have people do those things with you instead of you sitting alone in the nurse's office. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think if I was to give any advice to a parent of a type one, I would say help your child find the type one community because that's what really was a game changer for me when I started to meet people online that had type one diabetes because at my school personally, I think I had three total diabetics. None of us talked to each other. We didn't really hear about each other or we were never introduced to each other. And I didn't really start to meet any other diabetics until halfway through my college experience. And it was hard for me to find people that could relate to the things I was feeling. And because of that, I kind of pushed them to the side and would power through all these classes with low blood sugar, high blood sugar, because no one really could see what was going on. And I didn't want them to think I was making excuses, even though I wasn't. They just didn't understand how I was feeling. Absolutely. I kind of struggled with my diabetes, I would say, all the way until I graduated high school. That was a long time, and I constantly look back at it and feel bad about how I was in the beginning. I was one of those kids that feared my doctor. I would lie to my doctor, and I didn't take care of myself. But once I found that online community, once I started taking responsibility for my diabetes, and especially once I got a CGM, my life changed. I suddenly saw the potential of how happy I could be with diabetes. Now I kind of take it every day as, well, today might have sucked, but tomorrow I have control over how I'm going to start my day. So I kind of try to take it one day at a time. I love that. And I know for me, I feel so much better now that my sugars are more controlled. So now that they're not sky high all the time, I, I sleep better. I have more energy. It's amazing how much your body <laughs> needs that sugar in your cells to make you feel better. I think that that's something that is important to remember no matter how long you've maybe been ignoring your diabetes or sort of under treating it or trying to forget about it. It's never too late to just make one small change to start taking more control. Yeah, and I have no control over if the way I took care of my diabetes as a child affects my future, but I know I can preserve what I have now by taking control of it every day as much as I possibly can. Exactly. And also being kind to yourself in that. Like, I think that we need to recognize what we can and can't control. And so there has to be that, yes, you can make these changes, but also um, just sort of the acceptance of some days are just going to be quote-unquote bad days. Going off of that, with a chronic condition, you're the only person that understands yourself, what you're going through, how you're feeling. So when people make you feel guilty for eating something, for your sugar being this way, that way, just know that they don't really know what's going on like you do, and they're not to blame. For sure. Kind of connected to accountability and something that we decided we'd like to make a permanent ending to our show here. We've decided to create weekly goals or intentions for ourselves. Each week, we'll be picking out a task related to our diabetic lifestyles and sharing it with you guys. And maybe we fail, maybe we don't. But the point is that we're trying. Yeah, we'd really appreciate it if you guys would join in with us and you'd set a weekly intention for yourself. Feel free to share it with us on our Instagram, at T1Talks, because we would love to know what kind of goals you're setting. Exactly. 
And so, Gianna, to start us off, what's your goal for this week? Well, this week I'm planning to focus on carb counting. Um, I've always been the type of person to guesstimate my insulin doses when it comes to food, and it often leaves me overcorrecting or undercorrecting, and I feel pretty crappy for the rest of the day. I don't plan on writing my foods down with this because that's not the focus of the week. I feel like that will add some sort of unnecessary judgment that I'm not looking for. I'm just hoping to calculate my carbs into my pump and let that lead me to a more healthy, less of a roller coaster type day. Absolutely. And I love that. And I love the staying away from judgment by not including exactly what you're eating because your insulin really doesn't care. So my goal for the week is related to that sort of, but my goal is to eat lunch for five of the days um, of the week. So with school and exams and everything, it's so hard for me to keep my schedule organized and to do all the things that I need to do. And so I'm hoping that I can just eat enough of a lunch to have some insulin and hopefully feel better through the day. Yeah. And I can totally understand how when you're living a busy life, these kind of things get swooped into the day. They sound so simple, but it's the end of the night and you suddenly realize you forgot breakfast or lunch. Definitely. My favorite thing has always been to skip breakfast and lunch when I'm busy. And so I'm really trying to practice not doing that now that I'm diabetic because it just helps with that sugar control throughout the day. And so I think that that wraps us up for today, unless you have anything else you'd like to add. I think that covers today's episode. We look forward to you guys joining us next week as we talk about the importance of accommodations. Remember, we are just a DM away for any ideas of what you'd like to see on the show, questions, concerns, or maybe comments. And make sure to follow us on our Instagram if there's anything specific that you want us to touch on in an episode. And so with that, I hope you all have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.